Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. Since 1790, of the 113 individuals who've served on the United States Supreme Court, only four have been women. Similarly, in over 225 years, only three justices have been persons of color, two presently serving on the court. And for this reason, we are doing a special Ms. Magazine Supreme Court review. This Supreme Court term has been a roller coaster, leaving many to wonder about the court's commitment to equality, inclusion, non-discrimination. This all despite decisions that appear to be wins for vulnerable communities. For example, we've seen victories in very important areas, DACA, LGBTQ rights, and even abortion rights. But on close examination, many of those victories are so thin as to be porous and fragile. Even while it is illegal to discriminate against Americans who identify as transgender or gay in employment, the Trump administration has rolled back protections put in place during the Obama administration. And again, despite a win in June medical on abortion rights, the Trump administration has gutted reproductive health policies put in place during the Nixon administration, such as Title X, which provided reproductive health care for the poorest Americans. Many who are concerned about racial equality also view the Supreme Court as slipping in its regard for equal opportunity and the protection of due process for people of color. Joining me as we try to understand these issues and more, are Bridget Amiri. She is the Deputy Director at the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. Also, Dean Erwin Shimerinsky. He is the Jesse H. Choper Distinguished Professor of Law and Dean at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Leah Littman is an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast, and also Professor Fernina Tolson. She is the vice dean for faculty and academic affairs and a member of the faculty at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. Now, before we begin, we at Ms. Magazine also want to take a moment to acknowledge the tragic death of federal judge Esther Salas's son, Daniel, and the shooting of her husband, Mark. Judge Salas has bravely spoken out about this tragedy in her family. We all grieve with her and we admire her bravery and courage in coming forward and speaking out about these issues. So Erwin, I want to turn to you. Can you give us an overview of this term? I know that you argued a case before the Supreme Court. Um, what was that case? What was at stake? And, and did you win? Well, let me take those questions in order. Most of all, saying what a pleasure it is to be with you and Leah and Fernita. Um, it was a term unlike any other. The court decided only 53 cases with signed opinions after briefing oral argument. It's the fewest number since 1862. The court had telephonic arguments for the first time. The court did live audio broadcasts of its arguments for the very first time. I think it's a term that defies ideological characterization. Some media after the term ended on July 9th said that it was a liberal term. That's just not right. 
there were 14 5-4 decisions. In 10 of the 14, the majority was Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. There were only two cases where it was Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sonnet, and Kagan. There were some surprising liberal victories. The court saying that President Trump could not rescind DACA. The court saying that Title VII protects gays and lesbians, transgender individuals from employment discrimination. The court striking down the Louisiana abortion law. But there were also many cases where the conservative position prevailed. There were three cases about religious freedom where the conservative position triumphed. There were important separation of powers cases where the conservative position prevailed. In answer to your last question, the case I argued was Comcast versus National Association of African-Owned Media and involved the civil rights statute, 42 United States Code, Section 1981, that prohibits race discrimination in contracting. Alas, I lost by the close margin of nine to nothing. Oh, I think it's no. a for civil rights. Um, Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion and said that in order to have a claim under Section 1981, it has to be alleged and ultimately proven that race was the but-for cause of the denial of contract. It's not enough to show that race was a motivating factor. And even worse, he said, that all civil rights statutes should be interpreted this way unless a law expressly provides otherwise. And so at a time when our country is finally focusing much more on race and anti-blackness, the one race case of the court was a very much a loss for civil rights. So, Erwin, I, I want to take that just a bit further because many are suggesting that race is a losing cause before the Supreme Court. What's your message to people who are really disenchanted with how federal courts are addressing race? I think there's every reason to be fearful of what the Roberts Court will do with regard to race. In 1997, I'm sorry, in 2007, in parents involved in community schools for Seattle School District Number 1, Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion that was vehemently against any form of affirmative action. There's no reason to believe he softened that position. Also, with regard to voting, we've got to remember Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, which really gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. I think when you look at the five conservative justices on the current court, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, you see a court that's going to be, I think, very hostile to civil rights claims and certainly very hostile to affirmative action. Why do you think this is, Erwin? What was the shift? I mean, many people think about what I guess one might say the kind of glory days of starting with Brown v. Board of Education and the opening up of the court to consider racial justice in the United States. What's behind this shift that we now see this rollback? The composition of the court. We have five very conservative justices. I realize that Chief Justice Roberts isn't as conservative as Thomas Lito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, but I think on racial issues, he is. And this is the result of the presidential elections, that these are the justices who were put there by Republican presidents to be very conservative. And they're exactly that, including on racial issues. Well, with that, I, I want to pivot to Frenita, because you mentioned elections, a presidential election. And so, Frenita, I'm wondering how you see this term, particularly the voting rights decisions that have come out post-COVID. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think it connects with the message that we're hearing from Irwin. Um, yes, I agree that it does. So um, if anything, the uh, Supreme Court's decisions, especially since 
um, a lot of states had to shelter in place. And even though the, there were uh, primaries, uh, they had upcoming primaries. Uh, if you look at a lot of the court decisions that came out um, after the uh, shelter in place orders, the court has not been friendly to voting rights at all. Um, and it's really interesting to me, especially when you put it in broader context. So um, this term, the court issued an opinion on the faithless elector case, Chiaflo versus Washington. Um, and in that case, it was a decision to um, allow states to penalize electors who did not vote in accordance with the popular vote. They could either find them or remove them. Um, and one interesting thing about that opinion, it's, it seems to be very voter friendly in a sense, right? Um, Kagan authored the opinion, and she basically views electors as intermediaries between um, the people and the presidency, right? So to some extent, the electors don't have independent judgment. They should reflect the will of the people. And there seems to be this disconnect, though, right? This idea that electors are intermediaries for popular sentiment, but then you make it difficult to gauge popular sentiment, right? So we have a series of decisions that um, the Supreme Court has made in the uh, corona era where they basically make it difficult for people to cast ballots. So RNC versus DNC, um, the decision that keeps me up at night because of the implications for November, right? So this idea that- And kept people up in Wisconsin, especially <laughs> given that Wisconsin had been a hot spot. And, and this involves also the issue of race. We can't get away from race, it seems. Can't get away from it. The disparities, the, the disparities in terms of COVID-related deaths and contractions in the state of Wisconsin were just extreme around the time of the primaries, about 40% of the persons who had died from COVID were African-Americans in that state, even though they only make up about 6% of the population. Yeah. So the numbers in terms of the racial disparities are really horrendous. And um, it's compounded by the fact that a lot of Wisconsin voters had to wake up on election day and go stand in line. Um, and so, uh, but the Supreme Court made it difficult for district courts to enter orders that would um, extend deadlines, right, based on something called the Purcell Principle, right? The Purcell Principle is this judicially created doctrine that um, says that states cannot engage in, uh, I'm sorry, courts or even states cannot engage in last minute changes to election rules. Um, and so applying that principle in RNC versus DNC, um, the court said that um, the district court could not extend the uh, ballot receipt deadline. And the interesting thing about Wisconsin, though, Michelle, is um, the fact that a lot of voters requested absentee ballots and never received them. They did. They they never received those ballots and uh, and they were still waiting for ballots to be counted. Right. Exactly. And so it's 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 if you read the RNC versus DNC opinion, the thing I find so outrageous um, is the fact that the court is writing this opinion as if we live in ordinary times. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we're, in time, we're in the time of pandemic. Right. And as everyone said, I mean, they're they're doing telephonic uh, hearings themselves. And, yeah. and here it is acting as if, yes, these are ordinary times right. and an yeah. ordinary spring. And it wasn't. It, it wasn't at all. But I think the sense is that they are proceeding as if that is the case and they don't have to. Right. There are I mean, there's a, a, a whole line of cases that interprets the Constitution as protecting the right to vote. Um, and so, you know, I think RNC versus DNC really did sort of set the standard for uh, putting a burden on voters, right? Uh, if voters want to vote and they didn't re not receive their absentee ballot, they need to go stand in line. Uh, if you look at the decision by the Supreme Court to allow um, uh, states to refuse to uh, permit absentee ballots for COVID-related fears, 
um, that's another situation in which, you know, the court is making it more difficult for people to vote. And states can, um, states that have, um, that require an excuse in order to vote absentee can now refuse to give an absentee ballot to individuals who um, cite COVID as their, their, their reason for wanting to vote absentee, right? This was a decision out of Texas. Uh, we had another decision out of Alabama, right? This, this sense of, there's just a general sense that the court, especially on this, the issue of voting rights, has just not been friendly to the rights of the voters. Well, for a very long time, right? I can't yes. help but think of the image of Fannie Lou Hamer and to hear her describing to the Democratic National Convention just the horrors that she went through with attempting to vote in Mississippi and she and other Black women being taken in uh, state trooper you know, patrol cars to jails, jails that were full of men and then the women being beaten because all they wanted to do was vote. And she closes off saying all of this because we don't want to be second class citizens and all of this because we want to vote. And in her case, being beaten on the head with a baton and on her body and and so forth. I mean, it's just really horrific what this legacy represents. And I'm going to turn back to you on these questions because they do have a legacy. And I think it's very important that our listeners engage with that legacy so that they understand this is not just a matter of COVID and these times, but that we're living in a longer arc. So but before we get back to that, though, we're, we're going to talk about sex. Bridget, in your case, you argued the only abortion case that Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, heard when he was on the Court of Appeals. And you and colleagues at the ACLU and others sounded the alarm bells about his position on abortion during his confirmation process. Can you tell us about that case and how it now relates to matters like June Medical? Sure. Um, so thanks so much for having me. And thanks uh, for everyone on the on the show and all the listeners. Uh, so I did have the pleasure, I guess, uh, privilege, something, of arguing uh, the only abortion case that then-Judge Kavanaugh heard, which, um, as you mentioned, is the case involving an unaccompanied immigrant minor who was in a shelter funded by the government who requested an abortion after she discovered that she was pregnant. And the Trump administration said that she was prohibited from leaving the shelter from accessing any abortion-related appointments, including the abortion itself. The Trump administration was almost literally holding her hostage to prevent her from. It sounds like abortion. it. Yeah. And and, that does sound like hostage keeping. Right. You can't and, leave. There was no COVID. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, we rushed into court on her behalf and other young women like her. Um, but for her in particular, we got a temporary restraining order that the government immediately appealed. And Judge Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh was on the panel in the D.C. Court of Appeals that heard the emergency appeal that the uh, DOJ took. And, you know, instead of ruling on the case, which is very straightforward. This is not a, a, a complicated legal question. The government cannot ban abortion under Roe versus Wade. And you can't think of any more of a clear example of banning abortion than quite physically uh, prohibiting someone from accessing abortion instead of ruling in the case on the, on the matter consistent with precedent. Uh, then Judge Kavanaugh said that the government could continue to prevent her from accessing abortion while the government looked for a sponsor, a family member in the United States for her to be released to. And if a sponsor wasn't found uh, in a certain amount of time, we could start our case all over again and the government could raise new defenses. 
And well, obviously, incredible burden, right? <laughs> right. And obviously, that was unacceptable. She was already being pushed further into her pregnancy. We're racing against the clock. She requested the abortion when she was nine weeks pregnant. And we are uh, racing against the clock because Texas bans abortion where she was staying. Texas bans abortions at 20 weeks um, in pregnancy. We're already about 14 weeks at this point in her pregnancy. And we said, obviously, Judge Kavanaugh's decision is unacceptable. And so we asked for en banc review and the full Court of Appeals reversed his decision. And we, she was allowed to get the abortion. You know, but look at the, the amount of work that uh, you had to do and you had the strength of a powerful national organization with you, a flank of attorneys, but it's that which it took in this case for this teenage girl in order to be able to exercise the constitutional right that's outlined for terminating a pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely right. And and that the government, the Trump administration and the Department of Justice and the Solicitor General all fought us tooth and nail on this really fundamental principle that the government can't ban abortion for anyone. And so we did sound the alarm bells, as you say, when Kavanaugh was being considered to replace Justice Kennedy. And we said, he may say at his confirmation hearing that he's going to follow precedent and he considers Roe versus Wade precedent. But if he does, then why didn't he just apply Roe versus Wade in our case, which was such a Mm -hmm. straightforward case? And so now, as you mentioned, you see his dissent in June Medical versus Russo, and he, where he says basically that he would send this back down to the lower courts Um, Mm -hmm. instead of siding with the majority, including Chief Justice Roberts, that said that this decision was made about admitting privileges laws for abortion providers four years prior in whole. And tell about that. Exactly. Because this is like a repeat, you know, in many ways, thinking about June Medical reminds me of a a state contesting Brown v. Board of Education. It'd be Mm -hmm. like Louisiana saying, you know, a year after Brown, oh, that only applies in Topeka, Kansas. It doesn't apply in Louisiana. I mean, it seemed to me that that could be the kind of comparison that we had to June Medical. Right, absolutely. And it's really disturbing because the other side, the anti-abortion forces are trying to push cases to the Supreme Court in the hopes that the calculus has changed because Donald Trump has uh, vowed to appoint Supreme Court justices that would overturn Roe versus Wade. So they are seeing an opening. So the state of Louisiana pushed this case to the Supreme Court. And uh, obviously, you know, the Fifth Circuit let them because the Fifth Circuit found that there were uh, there were reasons to allow the Louisiana law to go into effect that were ostensibly distinguishable from the Texas law that was struck down in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead, but obviously that's poppycock. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it's concerning as to, as to what would have happened um, had... had um, had Chief Justice Roberts not sided with the majority. Um, so, um, but that, but Kavanaugh's dissent in, it... in June Medical gives us mm-hmm. a hint, you know, what, 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 where he is on these issues. Yeah. Well, so, and we're, we're going to come back to, to think about what does Chief Justice Roberts' involvement in this case, siding with the liberals on the court, what that represents. Are some people overreading it or are we understanding it in just the right uh, way. So thank you for giving us that that bit of an intro in terms of uh, talking about sex and what that meant in, in this term. 
everybody has flagged so far the Trump administration. And so, Leah, I want to turn to you. And then we're all going to get into it all together in terms of the presidential immunity case, the Vance v. Mazur's case. Tell us about this case and also give us some insight about where you see uh, what you see is coming next. Absolutely. So Trump versus Vance involved a New York grand jury subpoena um, to the financial accounting firm that housed the president's financial records. Under prior precedent, it seemed like that subpoena was surely valid. After all, presidents can be sued in civil litigation. Um, That was the case of Clinton versus Jones. Um, You can also issue uh, grand jury subpoenas in federal court um, directed to the president, even for official papers. That's United States versus Nixon. Nonetheless, this president's personal lawyers, as well as the Department of Justice, challenged the New York grand jury subpoena, um, arguing that the president is immune, at least while they are in office, from any criminal investigation that even if it's not directly targeting the president, might implicate him um, at some point down the road. The Supreme Court rejected that argument um, by a vote of seven to two, although Joan Biskupic, the CNN reporter for the Supreme Court, revealed that initially the vote was 5-4. That is, initially the chief justice joined by the more liberal justices would have allowed the grand jury subpoena to continue, whereas the four conservatives would have initially voted to force the lower court to rethink whether it was valid. How how should we understand that? Not to interrupt, but that's a really important point that you just slipped in there. So I think it's important to understand the role that the chief justice plays at this court. I think it was important to him to present a front of nonpartisanship and more uniformity. If the decision had come down 5-4, I think that would have, in his mind, been a real blow to the institutional integrity of the court, and it would have undermined the effectiveness of the decision. The court's prior decisions in Nixon, they, that was unanimous, Clinton versus Jones, um, you know, similarly, uh, not exactly fractured. And so a decision that was 5-4, I think, would have looked worse for the court than the ultimate decision that came down, which was 7-2. Now, the president, Trump's two nominees, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, would have asked the lower court to evaluate the subpoena under a more demanding standard that is applicable when a party seeks, for example, a president's official papers, whereas this case just involved personal records. But nonetheless, they concurred in the judgment that this particular subpoena could proceed um, with the president raising more specific challenges to it in subsequent proceedings. But you know, I think it would be a mistake to look at this term and think that the court was really policing excess presidential power. Sure, the court rejected this absolutely broadside attack on the idea of accountability under the law, um, but it did so in part because the president's arguments were just so outlandish. But in many other cases, the court was quite receptive to arguments that expanded the scope of the president's powers, allowing the president to fire the director of the CFPB, holding that that's required under the Constitution, as you discussed in a prior episode, or holding that the challenge to the DACA rescission, the plaintiffs could not proceed on the argument that the rescission was based on racial animus because the president was not directly involved and instead involved all of his other agencies and officials. And the court said, well, that's basically enough to insulate this rescission from a challenge that it was motivated by racial discrimination. And so in those decisions and others, the court actually expanded presidential power and in advance, it merely rejected what was an extremely aggressive outlandish claim of presidential immunity. 
So with that, I, I want to open up this discussion and I want us to talk about how the president has been viewed by this court. There has been criticism, including coming from the court, that this has been a Supreme Court incredibly sympathetic to the president that's given him a pass in some ways. We've heard that from Justice Sotomayor and also from others. So how should we understand how this court is relating to the president? And I open that up to you, Erwin, Leah, whomever would like to join in. Overall, I think this is a court that's been very supportive of President Trump. I go back to Trump versus Hawaii from two years ago, where the Supreme Court upheld the Muslim travel ban. Also, there have been a number of Supreme Court rulings on matters that didn't come before it for briefing and argument, what some have been calling the shadow docket, where President Trump has done very well before the court. So when President Trump unilaterally changed asylum rules, in a way that clearly violates federal statutes in international law. The lower courts enjoined it, but the Supreme Court lifted the injunction. Or another example where President Trump wanted congressional funding to build the border wall. Congress said no. President Trump refused to sign a spending bill. He had a longer shutdown of the federal government than any time in history. He capitulates and says, we'll sign the budget bill. But then he diverts Pentagon funds to build the budget wall in a way that clearly violates the Constitution and federal law. A federal district court judge issued an injunction against this. The Supreme Court, five to four, lifted that injunction. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the injunction in June. And just last Friday, the Supreme Court, again, five to four, lifted the injunction to allow President Trump to use federal funds to build the border wall without any congressional or constitutional authority. These are This the is unheard of. Right. I mean, these are the examples where President Trump is doing very well before the Supreme Court, much too well, because I think the court is upholding violations of the Constitution. So then can we take seriously then what Justice Roberts has said, that there are no Trump justices, no Obama justices, no fill in the blank Clinton or, or whomever? How seriously can we take that? In one sense, of course, that's right. Once a justice or a judge is on the bench, that justice or judge has life tenure. On the other hand, we know that the ideology of the justice or the judge matters enormously in deciding cases. And when you're talking about Supreme Court cases, the outcome is so much a product of the life experience and views of the justices. To me, it's very troubling how much the current court, five conservative justices, is willing to side with President Trump even in matters that clearly violate the Constitution. The president's positions are not necessarily out of step with uh, Republican priorities. And I think that it does matter, you know, in this sense that the uh, appointing president, his ideology tends to coincide with that of the, the justice he appoints. Um, but it's interesting how whenever Roberts is votes with the, the four uh, liberal justices, then he receives all of this criticism, you know, his vote in the abortion case and with DACA and, um, the Title VII case are, are all um, instances in which he's received a lot of criticism. There was a, a op-ed out recently which uh, called on him to, to resign, um, in part because of leaks from the court, but also it's sort of tapping into this general sense that uh, because he has uh, uh, voted with the liberal justices in some cases in this term, that that has uh, created this sense that he isn't um, really adhering to GOP priorities, which 
you know, it, which is something which should not be a question exactly, at all for a justice right? on the court. Anyway, the, court, the justices are supposed to be, uh, you know, calling balls and strikes here. But I think our political reality is that these are not neutral arbiters, right? These are individuals. They have uh, very conflicting views of the world, and that our politics are so polarized that any time um, one of the justices uh, goes against, and, and I'm putting that in air quotes, um, what their supposed view, supposed view of the world is, it should be then they, they receive extensive criticism. And so it, it raises a question about, you know, the position of the court and, and what our politics have done to it. So on, on that note, Bridget, I want to turn to you and thinking back about um, sex and the long arc of this court, because to think about Roe v. Wade, it's Justice Blackman who pins that decision. It's a seven to two decision. He's a Nixon appointee, right? Uh, to think about Title 10, it's George H.W. Bush shepherding it through Congress and it's Nixon signing it into law. It's Nixon being interviewed then by the leading papers in the country and saying, this is just plain old common sense, making sure that the most vulnerable Americans have access to reproductive health care. And so now as we, you know, pivot forward and we look at uh, June Medical and we look at the span of trap laws across the country, what is really the future of abortion rights and contraceptive rights in our country, given the makeup of this court? That's a great question. And I wish I had a crystal ball, but you're absolutely right. You too. <laughs> Where's the crystal ball, somebody? <laughs> exactly. I wish I had it. Uh, uh, it would make my job a lot easier. But you're absolutely right that a number of people, Ronald Reagan, too, when he was governor of California, was pro-choice. Um, so really, when the religious right came into power in this country, really, when they claimed this power and pushed Republican candidates and Republican politicians to say that they were anti-abortion, anti-contraception, that's really when we saw a big shift in this country. And so that's really driving a lot of what is happening because they weren't before and just as you say with ronald reagan not really neither with nixon not with george hw bush that that's right um yeah bush senior as well all of them uh so uh so it's it's really just changed um how uh how our how politicians have talked about abortion and their policies on abortion as well so with June Medical, there are those uh, picking up on what Franita said. There are those that have said that, look, Roberts has lost his religion. He sided in the wrong way because he joined the liberals. But really, if you, can you help us unpack a little bit more with the nuance of Justice Roberts joining with uh, the liberals on the court? Does it really mean that he's changed, uh, you know, changed his, his point of view, his jurisprudence on reproductive rights? Or was there a particular reason, do you think, that he joined? Was it about precedent and deals being struck behind the scenes on the court or anything else. So the opinion that he issued in June Medical Services, he refused to join Justice Breyer's opinion, which would have affirmed and applied the court's prior decision in the Texas case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead. That was a decision that struck down the admitting privileges requirement that Texas enacted. Justice Roberts, the chief, 
wrote separately to say he thought the court's prior decision in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead was wrong. Now, that was the decision that invalidated the admitting privileges requirement that would have closed over half of the 40 clinics in Texas and left only seven clinics in the entire state, all of which would have been closed for all in major of the women metropolitan in that areas. <laughs> exactly. For all of the women in Texas. You can't that, make that up. <laughs> that's a decision that the chief justice thinks is wrong, lest you think he is some great liberal savior. He said, instead, I am required to adhere to that prior decision, which I think is wrong because the court struck down an admitting privileges requirement that had similar kinds of burdens as this Louisiana admitting privileges requirement, which would have closed two of the three clinics in the state. Well, I'll, I will agree that this particular law is invalid, but I refuse to apply the legal test that the court adopted in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstead, which is more protective of abortion rights than the legal standard I would like. Instead, what he said is, I will not inquire into whether a state law advances a valid purpose. Instead, I will allow legislators to pass laws that they merely have reason to think might have a legitimate purpose. They don't have to back it up with any evidence. They don't have to back it up with science. Instead, they can just say, yeah, we think this might be good for women's health. And then I will only focus on the burden that the law imposes. That is the same standard that proponents of restricting abortion have been advocating for for the last several years. And that is the standard that the chief adopted and indicated he would apply in future cases. So in many ways, then that was like a kind of temporary win in some ways for those who support abortion rights. But really what he does in that case is to open the door for uh, the enactment of more trap laws, more laws just like the one that was struck down in Whole Woman's Health. I think that that's exactly right. Yeah, go ahead, Erwin. You asked what explains John Roberts' ruling in the June Medical Service case. My own explanation is it's about respect for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court four years ago declared unconstitutional the Texas law. Louisiana simply copied verbatim the Texas law, and the Fifth Circuit nonetheless upheld the Louisiana law. And I think what John Roberts was trying to say is, lower courts, you have to follow Supreme Court precedent. As Leah rightly pointed out, there's a tremendous inconsistency in John Roberts' opinion in June Medical Services. On the one hand, he's professing the importance of precedent stare decisis, and on the other, he's ignoring stare decisis and the precedent that Justice Breyer said there in terms of the test. Michelle, I think the overall answer to your question in terms of the future of abortion rights is at this point with these nine justices, it all comes down to John Roberts. I think there are four justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, who will vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. Will John Roberts be willing to go that far? The most optimistic reading of his opinion in June Medical Services is that he cares enough about precedent that he wouldn't vote to overrule Roe and Casey. On the other hand, the test that he articulates, as Bridget and Leah point out, is so deferential to the government, I think it will mean that most of these other trap laws will get upheld by the court five to four. It's just here, he wasn't going to uphold the Fifth Circuit decision that so disobeyed a Supreme Court recent ruling. So in part, what you're also saying then too, Irwin, is that perhaps what what helps to explain Chief Justice John Roberts in this term is thinking about the legitimacy of the court. I think John Roberts is tremendously concerned about the legitimacy of the court. 
Joan Piscubic, who covers the Supreme Court for CNN, did a biography of John Roberts a year ago. And I think that was a central theme. But keep in mind that Roberts has been a conservative his whole life. He's been a conservative justice since coming on the court in 2005. And so we shouldn't take a vote in June Medical Services or a vote with regard to Title VII is indicating he's other than overall a conservative justice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what about the Bostock case? So this is a case where many are saying this is a very clear victory that never before had transgender rights uh, received such deference from the court. Bridget, can you tell us a bit about this case? Because this was in part an ACLU victory, too. You know, hearing my colleagues from that project talk about it, they were writing this um, specifically um, for uh, Justice Gorsuch in particular, who is a strict strict constructualist, quote unquote, looking just at the text of the statute um, of Title VII in terms of what it would mean for someone to be discriminated against in employment uh, based on uh, their um, that they're transgender or that they're gay or lesbian. And so that was the audience that my colleagues knew they were writing to, and luckily they were successful. And um, looking just at the text of the Title X statute, uh, the court ruled seven to two that, um, or sorry, six to three, I think, right? Folks will correct me, six to three. That um, I was hoping seven to two, six to three, that, um, <laughs> that, that, that under Title We seven, can always hope. <laughs> I know. Um, that under Title VII, that employers can't discriminate against people um, because they are transgender or because they're gay or lesbian. So, Leah, what does this case represent? I think it's an important victory for LGBT workers. Um, you know, it confirms that employers can no longer fire employees simply because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, but I also think it's important to note that the decision has real limitations and could be substantially restricted in the future. Specifically, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, said that he was not deciding whether employers who have religious objections to LGBT equality or workplace non-discrimination protections, um, he was not deciding whether those employers were also subject to Title VII's prohibition on discrimination. And in fact, the court's subsequently decided cases on religious liberty suggests that Justice Gorsuch, along with the conservative justices, will conclude that either the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a federal statute that limits the ability of other federal statutes to substantially burden religions, or the First Amendment's religion clauses will prohibit Title VII from being applied to employers who have religious objections to workplace equality protections. And so while the decision in Bostock is an important victory for LGBT equality, it is important not to overstate how significant it might be, particularly in the hands of this court. It seems that that's a real theme of this particular term. And so I I want us to pivot uh, just a bit from the cases themselves to dig a little bit underneath and to talk about precedent and textualism and also the composition of the court. Can you give us a sense of what it is that you were thinking about at the time during the Obama administration when you suggested that perhaps uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and maybe Breyer should be thinking about retirement? In March of 2014, I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times encouraging Justice Ginsburg to retire at the end of the term. I said it was apparent that the Republicans were likely to gain control of the Senate in November 2014. 
And who knew what was going to happen in 2016 in the presidential election? Who knew? That was an understatement. And I said, the only way she could be sure that somebody with her values and views replaced her would be to leave then because there was a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate. I had no idea the reaction that I would get, including from Justice Ginsburg, who gave many interviews saying, some of <laughs> think I should retire and I'm not going anywhere. And um, hate mail would be a generous way of describing it. <laughs> People who usually have agreed with me strongly differed. Um, it was a gamble on her part. And if she makes it to the end of the Trump presidency, it was a good gamble. If President Trump gets to replace her, then we could think about it. Um, now, the only thing that I can say is I, like everyone, just wish for her good health and for staying on the court for a long period of time. President Trump has been able to appoint or nominate more federal uh, judges than any other president, save George Washington. What does that mean in terms of the future of our federal courts? Can I weigh in here, Michelle? Yes, please. Um, I find it terrifying <laughs> um, in a sense, because uh, what it means is that uh, we're going to have a majority conservative uh, federal court system for a generation, right? And um, so, you know, to the extent that uh, the courts have been a refuge for, um, you know, liberal and left of center causes for the last three decades, um, I think that requires a change in strategy. Um, now, we've been trending in this direction for a while, right? The, the Supreme Court hasn't really been liberal for a long time or even really moderate. Like we've been sort of moving um, in a, the, headed in a direction of a more conservative judiciary for a while. And so maybe um, it is uh, sort of, you know, this is a move in terms of thinking in, in terms of broader strategy and, and, and how to um, give voice, voice to the issues that people on the left care about. Uh, maybe this is something that should have taken place a long time ago uh, because the courts have been trending in this direction. Uh, I mean, what's one of the things that's so deeply disconcerting, though, is that, again, if you think about Roe v. Wade and some of the decisions that came about in the 50s and 60s and so forth, I mean, these are people who are Republican appointed who thought that, you know, racial equality, you know, makes sense. You don't have to be a liberal to think that, uh, that women are full persons and are entitled to dignity and autonomy. Do you need to be a liberal uh, to think in that way? Is in our politics? Yes. yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I guess you just put that, put a not too fine a point on that. So how do we understand the value of precedent this term? We've heard a whole lot about that and also textualism. Help our listeners to understand what that's all about. In terms of precedent, as we all know, there's long books and articles written on stare decisis, and they always come to the same conclusion. Precedent should be followed except when it should be overruled. And there's really no other answer to that, because we all believe that precedent matters for stability in the law. We also believe there's times when it's essential to overrule precedent. I don't think precedent matters very much for the Roberts Court. Um, I can think of so many cases, I mean, prominent ones, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission that overruled a seven-year-old decision, Shelby County that effectively overruled earlier decisions with regard to voting rights, um, Gonzalez versus Carhartt in the abortion area, that overruled Stenberg versus Carhartt, um, a case I argued a year ago in the Supreme Court, Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt, that overruled a 40-year-old precedent, Janus versus American Federation, that overruled a 40-year-old precedent with regard to speech and union rights. Yes, precedent mattered for John Roberts in the June Medical Services case, 
But overall, I don't think precedent is much of a limit on the justices, nor do I think textualism really is. The problem with textualism is words are inherently ambiguous. And the justices say the plain meaning of the words is this, but you could easily see the plain meaning being something else. So I'm skeptical that textualism really gets anyone very far. And in fact, to dig just a little bit deeper for our listening audience, Leah, tell us what exactly does textualism mean or imply? Sure. So textualism is the idea that courts should be interpreting statutes according to the words they actually use, the words that are enacted into the laws, not based on what Congress or another legislature's purpose was in enacting the statutes. So that's the philosophy of textualism. But as Erwin was noting, there's a lot of ambiguity in applying textualism. What specific word or phrase do you look at? How do you compare and contrast one provision to another? Um, And also a lot of textualists do look at things like context. What was on Congress's minds when they were enacting a statute? What was the common usage of a phrase? And so that methodology gives decision makers a lot of discretion, um, just like most other methodologies do. And a great example of that is Bostock. Every single opinion in Bostock claimed that it was applying textualism. Every single opinion in Bostock claimed that Justice Scalia, the proponent of textualism, would have sided with them. If every single opinion in a case can reach all manner of outcomes on the basis of a single methodology, I think that should lead us to question whether and to what extent that methodology is capable of actually resolving these cases. Yeah, I mean, it would lead some to think that perhaps it's all outcome determinative, right? And just slap textualism on it for a certain level of legitimacy appealing to a particular cohort. But in the end, as you say, it turns out that it's it's varying. And we see that in one case in Bostock, so many uh, different opinions and all claiming to be grounded in textualism. And I think if I can jump in, this is Bridget, and all of this conversation is making me feel like we need to say explicitly that the courts are not going to save us. The extent that people think that long-lasting social change and progressive change is going to happen through the court system, uh, that's just not going to happen. The only thing that is going to make a difference in terms of social change is sustained social movements and enacting laws and uh, it's the people in the streets who are fighting for justice and changing people's attitudes and minds. It's all They're all tools in the toolbox, but this idea that we can solely rely on the courts to protect our rights and to further civil liberties is mistaken and we can't get complacent about the other ways in which our uh, equally, if not more important to sustain, make and sustain change. Well, with that, it brings to mind any number of issues, but one that I want us to turn to is to think about the weaponizing of the First Amendment. So as we think about this court and we think about some of the shifts that have taken place, certainly with regard to reproductive health care and rights, though not exclusively, We see what Justice Kagan at one point called the weaponizing of the First Amendment. Erwin, what does that mean to you, that weaponization, and what are the ways in which we've seen it? The weaponization of the First Amendment means using the First Amendment to strike down other kinds of social welfare laws and regulations. It's really trying to use the First Amendment in the way the Due Process Clause was used early in the 20th century. I'll give you a couple of examples. Michelle, you and I wrote a law review article on a Supreme Court decision from a couple of years ago 
the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. That's right. Cali- NYU Law Review, you all. <laughs> yes. uh, it involved a California law that seemed quite simple. It said that facilities that provided reproductive health care to women had to post a notice. And it just had to be on the wall saying the state would provide free or low-cost contraception abortion for women who could not afford it. And also it said that unlicensed facilities had to post that. The Supreme Court five to four declared that unconstitutional. Justice Thomas wrote for the conservative majority and said that it was impermissible compelled speech. Or a moment ago in passing, I mentioned the case Janus versus American Federation. In 1977, in Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, the Supreme Court said that non-union members be required to pay the share of union dues that go to support the collective bargaining activities of the union. The court said non-union members benefit from collective bargaining in their wages, their hours, their condition of employment. They shouldn't be able to be free riders. But the court, five to four, overruled that precedent in Janus and said no longer can non-union members be required to do that. That's the case where Justice Kagan in dissent accused the majority not only of ignoring stare decisis, but of weaponizing the First Amendment. Of the 113 individuals who've served on the court, only four have been women. And similarly, in over 225 years, only three of the justices have been persons of color, two who are presently serving at this time. How do we end up diversifying these the court? And I can't help but think that that's really tough, given that um, with the help of Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, that... President Donald Trump has stacked the courts and the majority of those people who've been appointed are people who are white men. Anybody want to respond to that? Well, this is Bridget. I'll also, uh, you know, uh, ignite Leah on this, too, because I know she she's uh, interested in this topic, too. But who are the lawyers who are arguing in front of the Supreme Court? Who are uh, in the pipelines um, for the types of jobs that would lead them to be appointed to the federal judiciary? And it's overwhelmingly white men. I mean, the number of women and people of color who argue at the Supreme Court is so slim, it is appalling. I think Bridget is right that the courts will not save us. Um, But I think Erwin, Fernita, and you are right to say the courts could do a lot to hurt us. You know, it's not just the weaponization of the First Amendment. You think about a bunch of possible initiatives that a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate might do in order to make for a more inclusive, equitable world, increase access to birth control, increase parental and family leave use race-conscious remedies to address discrimination in voting and policing. All of those initiatives would be vulnerable to a conservative Supreme Court and conservative lower courts. That's why Mitch McConnell is, I think, the most significant politician of our time. Like the composition of the federal courts are going to have repercussions for decades to come, even though we cannot rely on the federal courts as our saviors, either from our predicament now or predicaments in the future. We have to do more to convince progressives and Democrats to care about the courts, to focus on them, and to appoint the kind of people who are going to be serving on the courts for a long time and moving the law in directions that will make it for a more inclusive, equitable society. 
So with that, I want to turn to the closing of our show, and that is to think about silver linings. And you've opened up uh, the hope for that, perhaps, Leah, by just outlining what is at stake and why Senator Mitch McConnell is so significant in these times. I think one thing that the conversation has illustrated today is the importance, the importance of a partnership between um, the courts, political movements, um, uh, voting rights. Right. So to some extent, yes, you know, I agree that the courts won't save us. You know, Bridget hit it on the head. And um, but as Leo points out, the courts can hurt us, which is why they need to be a continued focus. But also power sees nothing without without a demand. And so um, political movements play a very important role in in bringing issues to the fore that um, that society should care about. Right. And and partnering with voting. Right. Actually electing uh, officials who can be responsive to the demands of the community are a very important part of this. And I think we're living in that moment, right? So the um, the uh, widespread protests in response to the death of George Floyd have prov- uh, provided us with an opportunity to uh, bring to the fore a lot of the issues that have not been getting attention, even though people, you know, advocates, organizations have been suing about these issues of uh, police brutality and racial injustice and systemic racism, um, and the courts have been non-responsive. I think we're living in a moment where we may see some actual change. And so uh, that is the civil lining, right? So even if we can't, I mean, the Supreme Court heard 50, 53 cases, right? <laughs> like, you know, we, we're not changing the court. Um, the, the court will continue to issue decisions that are highly problematic. But I do think that there are other avenues for change that uh, give me hope. Okay, thank you for that. Leah, silver linings? I think the silver linings I would identify are similar to what Frenita suggested, which is that increasingly democratic politicians and progressive social movements are focused on the courts. You have the Democratic Party platform indicating that one important thing that a Democrat should do if elected to the presidency is focus on structural reform of the courts, focus on the kind of people it's nominating and possible broader reforms as well. Um, I think that that is a big positive development. It's an indication that the Democratic Party and progressive social movements are putting their capital and their focus onto the courts, which is where I think they should be in part. Bridget, silver lining? Uh, I think very similar um, to Leah and Fernita. And, and, you know, specifically, I think about what my colleague um, in the LGBT project, um, Chase Strangio, often points to, which is that, you know, for someone like uh, Justice Gorsuch to recognize transgender rights, to talk about transgender individuals in in the context of the oral argument, recognizing that there are transgender lawyers in the courtroom, is not a something that happens in a bubble, you know, uh, around, you know, all of these protests, you know, recently there were 15,000 people protesting in support of Black trans lives in, in Brooklyn. And so this conversation and how people can, can shift power, shift rights, shift the dialogue without, uh, you know, relying on the courts, but also informing the courts and educating the courts about rights, I think is also incredibly important and a silver lining of this term. Thank you for that. And Erwin, to close out, any silver linings that you see going forward? Sure. My silver lining is it could have been so much worse this term from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court kept President Trump from rescinding DACA. That means 700,000 individuals would be able to remain in the country and keep work permits would otherwise face deportation. The court held that Title VII prohibits employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Over half the states did not have state laws prohibiting such employment discrimination. Many never would. 
I certainly agree with Leah about concerns about how the court might create a religious exception. But let's not forget that this does provide Title VII protection that didn't exist otherwise. And I think it now means that there's over 100 other federal statutes that prohibit sex discrimination that should be seen as also prohibiting sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. The court did strike down the Louisiana abortion law, which means women in Louisiana will have access to abortion they otherwise wouldn't. And to me, the most important silver lining is November 3rd. And I hope we can have a conversation after that and talk about what that's going to mean for the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary in the years ahead. I'm being an optimist. Absolutely. That's really important. And we actually will have several shows devoted to the election, given how important it is, not only to this issue, but also so much more. So guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Professor Leah Littman, Bridget Amiri, Professor Fernita Tolson, and Dean Erwin Shimarinsky for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in. We hope that you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is with special guests, representatives Jan Schakowsky and Barbara Lee and tackling issues related to the Helms Amendment. It will be an episode not to miss. For more information on what we discussed today, please head to our Ms. Magazine website, mismagazine.com. And for our guests, if our listeners want to connect with you through social media, where can they find you, Leah? So I am on Twitter at Leah Littman. Um, and you can also follow um, our Supreme Court Focus podcast at Strict Scrutiny underscore on Twitter as well. All right. And Bridget, what about you? Where can our listeners find you on social media? Sure. I'm on Twitter, Bridget underscore Amiri, A-M-I-R-I. First name is B-R-I-G-I-T-T-E. And for Fernita, where can our listeners find you on social media? I am on Twitter um, at Prof Tolson, P-R-O-F Tolson, T-O-L-S-O-N. And Erwin, on social media, I know that Berkeley has an account that keeps uh, that keeps everything up to date for you. But but Erwin, are you on social media? I'm not on social media. I'm not on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. But if anyone needs to reach me, I am on email at echemerinsky at law.berkeley.edu. Thank you, Erwin. So if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcasts, look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Let us know what you think about our show. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers are Maddie Ponce and Roxy Zoll. Our research assistants are Zoe Larkin and Latiara Rashid, Rena Wakefield, and Sarah Montgomery. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.